0: From the Financial Times in London, I'm Arash Masudi, and this is FT News. Wu Wei, one of China's best-known tycoons, has been sentenced to 18 years in prison for financial fraud, cementing the downfall of the one-time car salesman who catapulted himself to the pinnacle of global finance over the past decade. At the time of his detention in February, Mr Wu's Anbang Insurance Group controlled 58 companies, directly or indirectly. Fueled by an overseas M&A spree, Anbang's portfolio grew to include New York's Waldorf Astoria, control of a South Korean insurer, as well as stakes in troubled European financial institutions. Back home, Anbang acquired substantial equity stakes in about 20 major listed companies. So what led to his catastrophic fall from grace? Here with me to tell the story and to look at what will happen to the empire he controlled is Henny Sender, our chief correspondent covering international finance, and Don Weinland our Hong Kong-based financial correspondent. Don, can you first tell us just how Mr. Wu built his empire?
1: Yeah, sure. So if you go back to 2013, 2014, you'd find it really hard to find anyone that knew anything about Ambong. Nobody had really ever heard of the company before. At around that time, basically what Ambong was doing was seeding its parent group with billions of dollars through... Shell companies that it had basically set up itself. So that's kind of the story of how Ambong grew to become a billion dollar company in the first place. Once it had done that, it began buying up assets overseas. So, you know, probably the most famous acquisition it ever made was the Waldorf Astoria in New York. It did that relatively soon after it had injected itself with assets. So that's kind of the foundation story for the Ambong that we all know today.
0: And to what extent was Chairman Wu, as we call him, his success built on political connections? And to what extent was it his business flair?
1: You know, I think there's a lot of debate over just exactly how his political connections had benefited him throughout the years. No doubt his connections with the Dung family Deng Xiaoping, you know, one of the great reformers of China. At some point in Chairman Wu's life, he was married to the granddaughter of Deng Xiaoping. This no doubt has something to do with his rise to prominence. But, you know, I think there's a lot of debate over just exactly how far those political connections went. Henny, what do you think about that?
2: I actually think it was the perception of political connections more than the political connections themselves. From the beginning, he was seen as fairly out of control, and the fact of his marriage was much more powerful outside China than it actually was within China. The fact is that he funded himself largely by issuing wealth management products in the market, which means he didn't have powerful, vested interests who needed him to survive. And I think that was ultimately his weakness that led to his downfall.
0: And Henny, you actually spend time with Chairman Wu. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yes, I met him on several occasions when he was always very charming, but not very focused for very long and one meeting was in the Royal Suite at the Waldorf Astoria. And he sort of had a pile of various miscellaneous things. And as I was leaving, he picked up a box of tea and presented it to me. I have no idea whether somebody had given it to him or he just kept these things to give to whoever he was receiving. But you really felt like you were being received, actually. It was not a conventional business meeting, to say the least.
0: So was he more showman than businessman in your perspective?
2: I mean, the thing that you really felt was that this was a guy who had a very short attention span, and to keep him engaged, you needed to stay away from serious topics, Because he would then lose interest. You know, he would want to know, what do you think about my purchasing this or that? And he loved stories about deals going wrong. But you couldn't sit down and have a really serious, focused conversation with him.
0: Absolutely. And this whole thing reminded me of the story we covered two years ago together, which was his attempt to buy Starwood Hotels, which he ended up losing to Marriott. But I remember one quote which you had gotten for the piece where one of the executives inside Anbang said, we went around the table and every one of us told him this was a bad idea, and yet he pushed through with it.
2: He didn't listen to advice, and that may well be because the people he surrounded himself with were not people who were likely to challenge him. In many cases, the people who signed off on the deals within the organization didn't really know what they were signing off of. And I think that's one reason why the empire is in such shambles today. And so many of the things he bought are actually losing a lot of value because he didn't have good, focused, serious people to do the day-to-day drudgery. And if you were at all strong, you were likely to quit because he would summon you, then he would change his mind. His empire was always built on sand, I think.
0: And so we're in a situation where Wu's punishment is the most severe among a group of these once high-flying Chinese tycoons who've had their wings almost systematically one by one clipped by Beijing's crackdown on outbound deal making in their attempts to address sort of systemic risks in their system. Don, how risky were his activities actually to the Chinese economy?
1: Well... Anbong was at the forefront of a wealth management industry that really exploded pretty much around 2014, 2015. So companies like Anbong and there's a number of other insurance companies that really moved away or not even moved away, but never even really had a real protection style insurance business. You know, they were issuing life insurance products that had huge cash values and huge investment components. And really, these were just short term, high yield investment products. So this is one of the ways that Ambong was able to grow so rapidly over a short period of time. I think if you look what happened across China in 2017, where the head of the insurance regulator in China was detained, a number of these companies were suspended from issuing these types of products. I think it's been judged that this type of investment product is incredibly risky, especially if you are taking these short-term insurance products and buying things like real estate, more longer maturity assets. So I think most people would agree that companies like Ambong but especially Ambung were taking huge risks with their investments. And do you
0: think Wu's image, especially that of this high-flying, sort of jet-setting mogul, contributed to his decline? And that's part of the reason why Beijing clipped his wings?
1: Yeah, you know, over the past year or so, we've seen a number of high-profile business people run into these kinds of problems. Chairman Wu's case is an extreme, but you know, we've also seen other business people in the private sector that have been essentially disappeared. There's another company called CFC in China, and its chairman a couple months ago simply vanished, and we haven't heard from him since. So I think these private companies that have gained a reputation for making flashy investments overseas, they are a bit at risk of incurring the wrath of Beijing. And I think one of the reasons for that is because China, at this point in time, would prefer that its state-owned companies are setting the pace for overseas deals, not people like Chairman Wu or, for example, the chairman of CEFC.
0: So, Henny, what happens now to Anbang's assets since Mr. Wu's arrest? Do the Chinese authorities manage it and unwind it? What happens now? He bought many things.
2: Before I answer that, I just wanted to add to what Don said. Why did Chairman Wu suffer more than Wang Jinlin at Dalian Wanda or Guo Guangchang at Fosun. And I think the reason is he alienated so many of the vested interests of China. In the other cases, the threat to financial stability came because these companies had borrowed so much from the banks. But in a very counterintuitive way, that meant that the banks – had a vested interest in the survival of these founders and their companies. With Chairman Wu, he hadn't borrowed a lot from the banks. The banks were indifferent to his faith, but precisely because, as Don said, the wealth management products were so risky, there were issues of social stability as well. And I think that's why he was singled out and treated so harshly by the authorities. And now the empire is a total mess. I think the authorities are very concerned. They don't really have great experience in running these things. And the European regulators are concerned. And the Korean regulators are concerned. South Korea has had a fairly volatile relationship with China recently. And now the government of China controls almost 20 percent of the insurance assets in south korea that does not make the south korean authorities very happy so they would like to sell off all these things but the problem is chairman Wu paid so much more than they can get that you have this kind of gridlock because every distressed investor in the planet is lining up wanting to buy these things at bargain prices And the Chinese government doesn't want to sell at those bargain prices. And one person at Anbang said to the insurance regulators, we will look as stupid as the Japanese did when they bought Rockefeller Center in the 80s. And Beijing does not welcome the thought of these fire
0: sales. Exactly. And you sort of just think of the image of the Waldorf Astoria, which is under renovation and deeply in need of financing to complete those renovations. And yet Ambang is not necessarily in the best of shapes to secure its future. Lastly, Don, what does this all mean for Chinese owned companies and how the investment community might think about them?
1: I think it's pretty clear. I mean, if you're a Chinese businessman who has access to bank finance in China and has some kind of design on buying up a, uh, you know, a flashy trophy asset overseas, this is not a good period of time for you. You're probably not going to do those deals. This is more of a period of time for the state-backed companies, the uh, state-owned enterprises to do overseas deals.
0: All right. And with that, I'd like to thank Henny Sender, who's joined us all the way from the States for this call, and Don Wineland, our Hong Kong finance correspondent. To keep up with all the latest in Chinese outbound deal making, Chinese tycoons, and the fate of China's economy, check us out on FT.com.